Hello, hello. Welcome to this podcast feature. My name is Barnaby Pickering. Today's episode is a long one, nearly 45 minutes in total, but I promise it is worth the listen. Joining me this time were Rolly Carlson, CEO of Immune Express, developer of Septicite, a test for sepsis, Mark McDonough, CEO of Chromacode, a company developing multiple blood-based tests for cancer diagnosis and treatment, with its first being in non-small cell lung cancer, and Lishan Aklog, CEO of Lucid Diagnostics, who have developed a cell collection method that aims to bring forward the stage at which esophageal cancer can be diagnosed. What a list. During the discussion, we chat about the three companies' products and why they are transformative. I get schooled by Carlson on the danger of prescribing antibiotics when they aren't necessary. And we also break down the regulatory and commercial hurdles awaiting diagnostics companies in the coming years, with the recent LDT rule change being a key focus. I hope you enjoy. I think it makes sense to kind of start off with introductions. So your companies and what they offer. Rolly, should we start with you? Good day, Barnaby. Uh, Rolly Carlson, I'm the CEO of Immune Express. Uh, we are a company based in Seattle, Washington, and we have a recently cleared FDA test for early diagnostics of, of sepsis. Uh, we're just starting commercialization uh, of of the product uh, in in Europe and also the US. Fantastic. And Lishan? Hi, I'm Lishan Aklog. I'm chairman and CEO and co-founder of Lucid Diagnostics. Uh, we have a laboratory in California. We're headquartered here in New York. Uh, we have a next gen, an NGS-based molecular diagnostic test that detects um, esophageal precancer using a non-invasive uh, outpatient um, cell collection device uh, to detect uh, esophageal precancer before uh, it develops into esophageal cancer, which is a highly lethal uh, cancer underserved. Thank you, Lishan. And Mark? My name is Mark McDonough. I'm with a company called Chromacode in Carlsbad, California. We uh, are uh, basically a kit manufacturer with some really cool proprietary backend software capabilities. We've developed uh, using our um, chemistries and software, we've developed really cool uh, genomic applications for uh, lung cancer. We have a nine gene, 15 biomarker, assay that we um, uh, have optimized on a, a chi-acuity instrument um, in dpcr to give uh, answers back within a day so that people can run this in conjunction with pdl1 and determine you know is a, uh, a therapy available that uh, maps to the nccn guidelines or, or should this patient be put on io and do that up front at a significantly less cost to the patient in the healthcare system. And then if that's negative, about 40% of the time, then reflects to an FMI test or Keras or Tempest or a comprehensive genomic profiling. So, uh, so we have, uh, we built a, a genomic uh, uh, assay on DPCR for lung cancer. We're in the stages of uh, building uh, assays for um, uh, transplant, organ transplant rejection. That's going to be disruptive to what's available through CareDx or Natera or Eurofins uh, by, again, enabling uh, laboratories and um, nephrologists and, 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 and transplant surgeons to do this in-house 
you know, for the 250 large centers throughout the, the U.S. Um, and we've seen a lot of demand in our market research that this would be a great tool to run internally. And then we're also in early stages of uh, developing a minimal residual disease approach, again, leveraging our HDPCR technology um, and and steer clear of, you know, the um, the patents of a Natera, for example, who's been one of the leaders in MRD and has been very, um, has defended their position there uh, legally pretty well. So we're, we're, we're coming at it from a different angle on mineral residual disease. We're in the very early stages there. So a lot more work there. And I don't want to talk too much about that. Um, but yeah, so it's a really, really cool technology. Um, uh, IP incubated out of Caltech, uh, where our founder has uh, electrical engineer um, uh, master's and PhD. And um, the company has been around for a little bit, uh, venture capital backed, uh, NEA, North Pond, uh, Vensana, Domain and others. But we pivoted from infectious disease uh, and kind of COVID testing three years ago into the world of genomics. And that's why I joined the company about a year ago. So kind of uh, taking it down to like a really concise 20 seconds, you know, really interesting technology that can be very disruptive. But we're also very early stages of proving out all of our capabilities. So in some ways, it's a uh, almost like a financial restart, if you will. Um, Rolly, I think Immune Express published some data on January the 22nd. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we just uh, extended our FDA clearance to actually uh, include the most universal blood collection de uh, device, which is EDTA blood. Our, our sample actually uh, detects um, sepsis directly from human blood uh, in, in and of itself. Um, and then also, um, we also received the Australian um, TGA, Therapeutic Goods Association, uh, approval um, just in the uh, middle, of, middle of January. That was important because the technology actually originated in, in Australia uh, as far as the concept of really host response, which was measuring the human host response to a pathogen and going down the sepsis uh, cas cascade. And while it was uh, initiated in Australia, we moved the technology to uh, U.S. and Europe where we did our clinical studies, and that was the basis of our, of our clearances. But we're very happy to now uh, have the technology and the product available for the Australian health community. Fantastic, fantastic. And uh, Lishan, I think it was uh, mid-December last year, you, uh, your company published clinical validation data. Yeah, yeah that's clinically totally. So yeah, we've, had, we've been fortunate the last six months or so, we've had a burst of both clinical validity and clinical utility data. Um, the clinical validity data was uh, was a bit earlier in the fall that um, it's it's pending peer review. It's posted on um, on um, the, uh, the MedArchive a preprint server, and that demonstrated a really outstanding, um, unprecedented sensitivity specificity for detection of a precancer. They're just, we've never seen 85% uh, sensitivity for the earliest stage uh, precancer in metaplasia. The other three studies were um, clinical utility, which is a little bit less sexy, but, but uh, uh, at least as important in terms of getting patients access to the technology and getting payers in this country to pay. And that uh, that demonstrated that clinicians were, in all three studies, used the test appropriately in that um, when our test is positive, they appropriately 100% uh, of the time referred to the patients for a 
confirmatory endoscopy, which is how, what you need to do to plant therapy. And as importantly, uh, for a triage tool, it's the triage tool of a non-invasive test that seeks to triage patients to the invasive test endoscopy. As importantly, the negative, uh, when our test was negative, uh, uh, physicians did not send patients for endoscopy. So they, they relied and trusted on our test uh, when it was negative. So uh, very, uh, very, very powerful results that are going to serve as well for our upcoming activities in the market access site. It's interesting you mentioned that. I think uh, particularly in the world of cancer diagnostics, the whole kind of uh, false positive, false negative tie-up seems to be where companies like, you know, Grail are really sort of tripping over their own feet. Um do you think that this is a broader problem with the whole diagnostics industry? Do you think that it's kind of more confined to just cancer, the more serious yeah. indication? I think I, I you know, look, I think I think the um I think cancer is specific and cancer prevention, early detection have very specific, it's a very specific paradigm that we're operating within. And uh the key key there and one of the challenges that we have is people sort of fixate on the sensitivity and specific numbers, which are obviously the core basis for the underlying um, um, performance of the test. But how it operates in clinical practice is very dependent on other factors, right? And so, you know, the prevalence is very important, and that'll determine your false, your your negative predictive value and your positive predictive values, which are are more relevant for the purposes of how you know a, a test that's designed to be to have a very high negative predictive value and an acceptable multiple and your positive predictive value. All of that obviously depends on your and then the on your um, uh, prevalence. But the other the other thing, which even amongst cancer detection or early detection programs, something that we often miss and doesn't end up in the conversation is what is the risk of a false negative? What's the risk of a false positive? They're not the same, right? If you have an appropriate alternative, uh, let's say you're trying to come up with an alternative to it and an endoscopic screening methodology that's widely utilized, then a false negative is a big deal because that patient would otherwise have gotten gotten a, a different test. Or on a false positive, if your test happens to, like, let's say, in lung cancer, to identify a nodule as malignant that leads to potentially invasive uh, interventions that don't um, that carry complications and risks associated with them that the patient otherwise would not have had that contributes to the risk profile. And one of the challenges we've had is to is to explain, to, um, to get in the conversation that we're a low risk in both, in both regards because guidelines have already said that patients should get endoscopy. There's a category, very clear, clear clearly described patient criteria. And so if, if we have a false positive, that's fine. The patient wasn't going to get an endoscopy anyway. They're not going to get some new invasive tests. And our false negatives are, we don't like to have any false negatives, but... But but only five percent of people recommended for testing uh, are actually getting tested, and so we're we're operating in this in this blue sky. So there's a lot of subtleties beyond just sensitivity and specificity that that it's important for us to kind of get those messages out that, that don't always come up in the conversation. I guess, uh, Rolly. I mean, it, you know, sepsis. It, in an ideal world, everyone that enters a hospital would be tested for sepsis. Um, it, the consequences of a false negative in sepsis are dire consequences of a false positive don't seem too severe i mean worst case scenario patient is on antibiotics that they don't really need which you know obviously not ideal but not the end of the world um i don't know i mean do you kind of agree well with you know, actually i would I, I think that the um much of what um Lishan, uh, mentioned as far as oncology and i was in that world for many many years in diagnostics uh is is relevant to uh, in certainly in sepsis and infectious disease as well 
Uh, certainly the, the prevalence of, of sepsis is dependent upon uh, where location in a hospital. It's much higher, obviously, in the ICU and less so in ED. Uh, in the ED, you really need to have something that's more from a, a screening standpoint that's going to probably have high, high sensitivity. But uh, the trade-off there is, is that you'll have uh, uh, lower specificity as, as a consequence of that. And the issue is that, yeah, there are consequences if some, if, if someone is diagnosed as being septic and being treated for that. And uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, depending on the location from a screening standpoint, uh, if it's in the ICU, that could be uh, catastrophic because you might be having a basically uh, what is a, a patient being treated for sepsis when there's actually some other ideology going on. And during that time, if it was a kidney patient, for example, antibiotic treatment could be lethal. Uh, the, uh, but the other thing is if you have a test uh, that basically is indicating high degree of, of sepsis, then sure, rule in, get on top of that patient and administer the sepsis bundles as, as prescribed by CMS and other, other payers. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have someone in the ICU strongly suspected, uh, suspected of being septic, of which 45% of ICU physicians will call it sepsis, but it's not. Um, they're in the ICU and they're sick and there's something else going on. You need to be looking for other ideologies that would look like that. But the problem with sepsis is for early detection of it, it looks very similar to other things. It could be um, you know, a, a, a brain bleed. It could be a cardiovascular issue. It could be a number of, of, of different things. And so, you know, the prevalence uh, it, uh, in the ICU of sepsis is about 40%, but it goes down to about 18% in, um, in, in, in ED. Uh, one thing I would say, though, so I, I think that uh, certainly sensitivity, specificity, and NPVs, PPV that all that Lishan had described are relevant for infectious, certain types of infectious diseases. Uh, when I was in the oncology business, and this comes down to all diagnostics, I mean, do you really have what is truth? You know, and so what are you comparing that to for a gold standard, which in many cases is imperfect? And under that circumstance, sensitivity and specificity, based on the definition, uh, really goes out the window because there's you you are actually trying to compare it to something that's 100% truth. When I developed and launched uh, bladder cancer, very successful bladder cancer and early detection test called Eurovision, um, we were seeing uh, cancer before uh, cystoscopy. And so, uh, and when we were go going with the FDA, we said, we think that these, uh, certainly we're going to monitor these patients and we will see for the, over the next 18 months as far as whether they develop that or not. And our you know, sensitivity and specificity in increased by probably about five to six points because uh, we uh, we were basically uh, seeing them earlier. And as a consequence of that, the FDA accepted that we had anticipatory positives, uh, which was uh, that the other technologies could not define. Can I just, just follow up on that real quick? Because that's of course. Really, the whole question in diagnostics is, as, as Raleigh said, is what's the gold standard? And the gold standard is usually, like sometimes we'll say, uh, endoscopy is the bronze standard. And it's, that's especially acute when you're talking about transitioning from traditional, you know, optical, pathological, histochemical, you know, hist hist even histochemical type tests to molecular tests where you're picking up, you know, biologic processes at a much earlier stage. So we're dealing with that exactly. We have, we clearly pick up 
biologic signals with regard to methylation and other epigenetic changes way before you could see them on on endoscopy. And we've had numerous examples where someone gets an endoscopy based on our test and they, on regular endoscopy, they don't see any abnormality and they otherwise would not have biopsied that patient. And then they, they, to their shock, they biopsy them because they had a positive molecular test. And to their shock, they see pathologic changes. So that it is a uh, an interesting challenge that, that that we deal with, as we're, particularly as we're transitioning to more molecular methods. Three innovative companies targeting three different areas where there's unmet need. You're going to be facing some similar commercial challenges and I imagine some very, very different ones. Um, are there any sort of broad uh, commercial themes that you've seen playing out over 2023 that you think are going to continue into 2024? Is that issues with pricing, supply chains, inflation, competition? Great question. I think for us, it's um, I think the macroeconomic commercial trends that we believe are that there's going to be and, and why it's you know this may sound self-serving, but why chroma code and um, digital PCR can be a great application for it is we see that there's going to be downward price pressure and we feel like there's going to be a reimbursement pressure kind of over the next three to five years. So being able to highlight how you can get folks to treatment quicker, how they can run testing without conceding clinical value um, faster and less expensive and requiring less tissue we think are, are trends that are going to continue. We've had preliminary discussions with Moldyx and uh, with you know CMS and other payers, and they they uh, they uh, will uh, reimburse for assays that can both help more patients and um, uh, sell, save the healthcare system money. So so we've uh, got a white paper on how we're we're you know saving. The healthcare system money by doing this test as a front line with our lung cancer as an example, um, and you know we think that'll help lead to uh, positive reimbur- uh, reimbursement for our assay at a much reduced rate than comprehensive genomic profiling. So the macro trend to your question, um, I think, is that uh, uh, you know reimbursement is going to be a key driver of for all you know diagnostics and therapeutics in the next uh, several years and from twenty three going forward. Um, and so how do you how do you prove clinical utility and clinical validity and and, um, you know, how, how it affects and helps patients and that you're doing things the right way? I think Raleigh was talking about sensitivity and specificity. You know, that those are all the things that we intend to bear out and, and we're building a mountain of data, you know, to prove to prove what we're doing. Um, and then the other trends, you know, I see for for companies like ourselves that are pretty lean commercially, even though that's, you know, my background and I've led teams of you know, 80 people in commercial with a $120 million business right now, we're basically pre-revenue with a very lean commercial org is uh, finding partnerships with the big orgs. Uh, And so for us, whether it's a Kyogen or a Roche, where we're optimizing our digital PCR system, uh, HDPCR technology on, do they then want to be worldwide distributors? And so those are conversations you know, down down the road that we want to have uh, because it's uh, it's a lot easier to leverage people who are already selling instruments to add content than you know build out our own teams. Anything to add from Raleigh Lishan? 
But I would just emphasize the reimbursement side. I mean, everything else is sort of traditional blocking and tackling, building commercial teams, your laboratory operations, and so forth. Um, the biggest challenge, the biggest unknown uh, that drives all of our, you know, that, that sort of underpins all of our challenges, whether it's raising capital and otherwise, is having a predictable path to reimbursement. Um, it's um, uh, the current system uh, through Moldex is just not transparent. It's not predictable. Um, they are. They have. Um, yeah, we, we've had a bit of a slog getting getting up to a final and effective foundational LCD, which we do. Have, we have now. We're able to kind of backfill. But um, that's that's really at the end of the day. Um, but when we you know if we solve that, we'll be you know we'll be fine. Particularly in the earlier you know the um, screening um, early detection type. Um, um, pathways because the uh, the hurdles are a bit higher. I would agree. You know, one thing where we are selling into is the hospital environment uh, directly. In the hospital, uh, the costs and, and profitabilities of hospitals are are really have post-pandemic have really spiraled down. And um, it, as a consequence of that, certainly reimbursement is very, very important um, and, and adequate reimbursement, which has been insufficient in many uh, you know, in, in many quarters uh, overall. Um, but I do think that what you're seeing is that the large systems and IDNs are uh, certainly more profitable in the U.S. Uh, overall. It's the smaller and medium-sized hospitals and independents uh, that are under huge cost cost pressure. When, and quite frankly, they're the ones that need uh, innovation, such as our companies here. Uh, they can be able to help them make decisions that really on the front line. Uh, overall, so there's a there's a disparity there. I think on the commercial uh, side, while we all look for partnerships, I think that you know, uh, frankly, you know, the larger diagnostic companies have really been focused on on COVID, but now they have a big hole as a consequence of that. You know, from a revenue perspective, and much of what they're uh, chasing are me too type of products, and so for the companies such as ourselves that are bringing new innovations. Uh, that are making uh, uh, compelling differences from a health healthcare standpoint. I do see that the larger diagnostic uh, companies that in, traditionally in the past have been doing partnerships are now starting to come around uh, to see that that those are basically you, uh, there is a bit of a risk to come for the new technology, but uh, when you're stepping out of a given proven market, but just going after share uh, overall, which drives prices down, you know, for for all comers is 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 going to change the game. You know, and certainly in the backdrop, and I know you're going to get to this part of me, but that, you know, with the LDT rule that is coming up there is going to have a, a, a huge, you know, uh, potential bearing, depending upon what the outcome of that, uh, not only from a pricing, but also from a cost uh, uh, perspective, uh, broadly in the industry. We'll hold off on the LDT rule change, because I am going to ask about that. You predicted that well. Um, and just kind of talk a little bit more about pricing. Um at least from the outside, it, it, it seems that diagnostics gets a really, really unfair deal. Um, a diagnostic is used before pretty much every single medical decision. And yet I think diagnostics are kind of attributed around about 2% of total reimbursement. It's such a tiny fraction. Um, I mean, Mark, your diagnostic can indicate pdl one inhibitors or contraindicate them, saving patients' lives and also saving systems money. But Shan, your technology can save people from, you know, progressing from Barrett's esophagus to esophageal cancer. Again, saving healthcare systems money. Rolly, your products stop people from dying of sepsis, which is, you know, I, I think it's the number one hospital killer worldwide at the moment. 
Um, it is. And in the U.S. is the number one cost uh, uh, for only five five percent of cases in hospitals, but it's the number one uh, highest uh, cost in the U.S. hospitals, uh, sepsis management. And, and yet you can't charge that much for your tests. I mean, Mark, I imagine you'll be able to get a list price, a few thousand dollars. Lishan, maybe upwards to two thousand dollars. In some indicators, we have a Medicare price of 19, 1900 so uh, we're pretty And then, Rolly, I imagine your test will be potentially sub $100 by the time everything is kind of priced in. Well, uh, hopefully not. Uh, to, hopefully uh, not. I, I, do, I do think that, you know, it's it's going to be comparable to what would be uh, classic pathogen testing, you know, in, in the category, which is between $150 and $200. So. The, the, these are all kind of fractionate amounts of what you're saving healthcare systems. Do you think that payers need a rethink about how diagnostics are reimbursed? When, when you know, LabCorp bought us at U.S. Labs, it did the theme in 2007 at the um, Executive War College when Dave King was talking is that we're, we're 4% of total spend, right? And so I'm not advocating that we just put our heads down and accept it but nothing's changed. You know, that was 17 years ago. And so I think we have to keep fighting because otherwise it's just weak and we don't, you know, we don't change the behavior, but it, it has unfortunately become one of those things that I've um, come to accept. So then as to, to Lishan's point is now you, how you build a business is you just gotta, you gotta figure out how to get the best, most fair price possible and then control your cog so that you can, build a business and forecast. Okay, we now have some regularity. We know Moldex is paying us 1900 bucks and we know our commercial are paying us 1200 and we know we have a 10% non-pay, zero pay. And let's do the math and how do we get our cogs and how do we run our business? So I think we have to keep fighting uh, with the payers to say, hey gosh, and keep showing light, you know, Barney on that and not, not give in that we are anywhere from two to 4% of the total spend and pharma is a ridiculous amount of the total spend. And sometimes it's great because there's some therapies and I've seen it with my mother-in-law with IO that are game changing, but the other therapies are not great. They cost a lot of money and they're toxic and people still suffer really horribly and die. Right. So um, I think it's, it's about continuing to build evidence is, is all we can do. And, and then justify the, the prices increase and then show how like we're, we're working hard to do with the lung cancer assay show how in real practical cases, if it's run in conjunction with immunistic chemistry and we get the answer X amount of time and only reflex when it's negative, that people are going to get on therapy quicker. And so time to therapy then is a, is a cost savings. And then there's a cost savings on the diagnostic side. And this is why we have to charge higher prices for the diagnostic because it, it, it really affects the whole continuum, you know, so that that's our approach to it. But there is there's a part of me of, you know, we'll continue to shed light on it. But I'm also not overly optimistic that this is, is going to change. Um, and there's just so much money in big pharma, to be honest. I think, you know, um, you, you, you touched on this, Mark, um, and you did as well, Barnaby. Pricing is, is only a small part of it. Um, like we have, we have pretty decent pricing. Um, uh, you know, we can definitely work with that. It's sort of what is the, what are the economic, uh, standards to which we, we're, we're being helped, right? A new cancer therapeutic comes in. They're just, it's really just about efficacy, right? And sure, there may be some debate as to whether they get to charge a million dollars for their CAR-T or, I don't know, $100,000 for some other immunotherapy. Um, but 
it's if not the, the argument that it's going to result in a savings as opposed to the argument that we're going to save lives and it's going to cost money to save lives is sort of um, baked in. We, we, we have that challenge where we're being asked from day one to sort of, you know, uh, justify on a net economic basis, even though we have an opportunity to save lives and to save lives that at a quality adjusted years of life saved, you know, that are respectable. Um, um, you know, that's, that's a challenge. That's the double standard that, that, that we, that we face and that leads to sort of the, the, the challenges on the coverage side uh, that go way, way beyond sort of uh, issues of pricing for individual pests. And sort of reflect the investment to the 2% number that you mentioned. At the end of the day, that's a certain bucket of dollars that are being spent on, 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 on tests and they have to be divvied up in certain ways. And so if you, if you're going to save lives by, by, by offering a groundbreaking test and you're, the, the requirement as to whether patients are going to get access to that or not is um, saving money as opposed to saving lives in a cost-effective way. It's an upper battle. Just one other quick thing, which is that there is activity. I mean, there are things we can do. Um, we've, I've been pretty active, and the company's been active working with um, Avimed uh, and Avimed DX on legislation. I mean, there are things that can get done at the at the um, at governmental level that can impact uh, and lead to reforms with how um, how Medicare pays, uh, it provides coverage and payment. Yeah, I think you're, sorry, Riley, I'll let you, but good point on Abamed and C21's been another good group. Okay. They're, they're working hard on, on with Hannah's group and trying to yep. um, help, help us, you know, lobby uh, at the government level. So really good point there. And I don't advocate giving up on this stuff. I, I don't want to have a neck because I'm an optimist. I don't have a negative attitude. I just, it, it's amazing that over the past 20 years, we've been saying a lot of the same things. Well, yeah, I mean, the legislative uh, approach, I mean, with Abimed and I know, um, Lee Chan, you've been actively involved with this. I mean, if you look for diagnostics, if you have, you know, from a FDA perspective, is uh, a new technologies a breakthrough technology? Um, then should that have some sort of automatic reimbursement? Versus, it's inverted in that you might get FDA clearance, but then you're going to have to go through all of the cost effectiveness uh, uh, studies that are going to be important to do, which will take you know uh, two years and lots of money, you know, to do that before you can actually sort of um, have that ju justification for a particular code. And so I think that what that can do is, uh, for, particularly for innovative products, be able to get them um, easily or more easily adopted, demonstrating the clinical utility the first two or three years, and then be able to stand on their own uh, afterwards, which is very, very important. I mean, the, you know, the, the stack, the deck is stacked against us. I mean, if you think of just about costs that are associated with pharma, uh, pharma uh, it's not only pharma uh, pricing, but all the intermediaries between that have their you know, hands in the till, quite frankly. And so we don't have that. We're going directly uh, to our customers. We don't have that intermediate uh, that's going to be uh, put that we're going to be part of you know, uh, formulary or something along those lines. I mean, if there was a formulary for diagnostics, then obviously that's something that might create a business. So. And this is a very specific uh, example you, you touched on, which is the uh, breakthrough device designation leading to automatic CMS coverage, right? There was MSIT, which was which was promising, and now there's TSET, trans transitional coverage for emerging technologies. The, the final TSET 
the, the, the draft he said rule explicitly excluded diagnostics. <laughs> so even there, we're not competing against pharma, we're competing against med tech. And uh, what I got the chance to testify because there's a house bill that's trying to um, uh, make TSET better through legislation. And um, and that does not exclude diagnostics. So it's a battle. Like, why why would, you know, I, I, when I was testifying, I was like, why would you exclude diagnostics? You know, what is the possible rationale for excluding diagnostics for, uh, amongst the, I mean, so much of the innovation that's happening now um, is happening in this space. Um, and, you know, and clearly the current processes through MoldyX are not, are not facilitating, you know, are not necessarily helping the process. Fair enough, fair enough. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about legislation, the LDT change rule, Raleigh, that you mentioned. Um, it looks like it could be a disaster. However, if I was a company that already had a fully FDA-approved test, I'd be kind of clapping and dancing right now because it's definitely going to delay any competition. Is it going to be a net positive for the diagnostic sector or not? What do you all think? And I, you know, I'm also, again, deeply involved with this because I'm throughout the event. The idea that the, the the problem with LDTs are that they are um, a backdoor uh, competitor to companies that have invested in the uh, getting a PMA or so. You know that that's the that's the core problem, or that's really a common uh, factor is not true. <laughs> that 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 LDTs for for good or for bad may not be the system we designed have become the pathway for um for innovation and um and if there's an innovative technology that's coming out of academia or or elsewhere and you have the opportunity to commercialize it as an LDT so you can get the clinical experience to to do so um uh, that's been a driver of innovation so this the you know the IVD companies uh, to some degree they 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 argue that LDTs uh, are a backdoor, but that's just not to me. That's just sort of a, a bit of a red herring, um, and so I think it will be it will be a, um, a problem. Uh, it's highly flawed. There is no. I, I don't know if you guys have seen some of the analyses by Bruce Quinn and others as to what the uh, resources that FDA that FDA would need to implement the rule as is. Uh, I was just, you know, Advermet just did the Medufa five uh, engagement with FDA that I, that increased the user fees to about two billion dollars. I think it was almost double. Um, he estimated that it would require a hundred billion dollars um, to to uh, to to put all LDTs through the same pre market clearance process as as medical devices. So um, we hear it's going to it's going to be effective, most primarily, you know, effectively in its in its current form without much and without much. Um, um, uh, alterations come April. Uh, there'll be lawsuits from Apple and others, and we'll see how it plays out. But there's nothing positive about it. And the only, I guess the one positive thing could be that it stimulates uh, Congress to act, and that's that's perhaps the primary purpose of this is is in fact to shake things up and get Congress to do a, a more systematic approach, like the Ballot Act, which has you know pros and cons, but ultimately is a, is a more a sound, um, uh, more systematic approach to up, updating uh, regulation of diagnostics. Well, you know, I've stood in uh, both the IVD world uh, very strongly and also LTT uh, in my previous companies. And I think that there's a good balance now, uh, quite frankly, you know, with what's what's required. Uh, and I think 
the you know the the fact uh, that there are, is oversight at the at, at the end of the day what the FDA and what we want are high quality products and and then they clearly want to ensure that and I think that we all have alignment with that uh, and there's different ways to be able to 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 approach that and there's other regulatory agencies that have oversight for LD, LDTs um, you know the and and quite frankly it's very high quality very high standards uh, that that are associated with it. Um, you know, the sort of analytical component of uh, reagents that are being utilized for LDTs, things along those lines, I think are very important because, you know, it's the components of of, of, of your product that are important for uh, quality results uh, overall. But, you know, with I- IVDs uh, and, and being able to provide a, a full kit uh, uh, available for multiple distribution on a broad basis, is an inexpensive way to be able to uh, try to address uh, a portion of what are going to be, you know, laboratories' needs, but it can't do all of it, you know, quite frankly. And in, in, in a hospital, there's a continuum of tests uh, that are that are being made, uh, many of which are uh, IVD cleared, but some of which are being used uh, and then demonstrated within their own hands uh, in a different setting, quite frankly. And so, uh, uh, and this rule, by the way, is also trying to reach into IBDs uh, as well, and uh, to make sure that there's a whole other standard that's associated with that. With that, accordingly, I would agree that the um, estimate, as far as costs, uh, are uh, you know, there's quite quite disparate as far as what reality is and versus what the the FDA has, has estimated. Yeah, I don't have a well. I'm going to say a few things, but it's not really well said in both parts. I mean, I, I'm fortunate to attend a, a, a meeting every year that Brooke Byers of Kleiner hosts in, in uh, Orange County where someone from the FDA, either Scott or uh, others would come, you know, Jeff Schur or others. And the thing they've talked about for the last several years is just that exactly what LaShawn said is just staffing is really hard. So the practicality of this is going to be very, I, I'd like to think very difficult. That said, um, you know, we're doing our, our, our organ transplant assay. We're, we're going to have on a dual path of LDT and, and FDA uh, and IVD. Um, this ruling just crystallized it. That was going to be our pathway anyway. But um, for the companies who are doing things the right way, this will just be uh, another opportunity to, to tighten up. I, I worry, like as a side, when as a period and we are software, you know, the risk of, of being a locked in IVD is when there's innovative you know, breakthroughs that, you know, are you locked in? Thankfully, we had a a clause where every month we could do a monthly update that was in our approval, right? So uh, the, the, why people have loved LDTs is because it fosters innovation because you're not locked in. And so when things change on the therapeutics, you can you can change with them and, and uh, you know, improve your assay. And so if that is going to be a, a component of with the new act on the in the IVD world, I think that'll that'll answer that objection. Um, so I do believe, you know, we see it with COVID. I, I, I do think no matter how many great companies are doing the right thing, we, we still are in a business where there's some weird forms of the business where people push things so much, whether it's COVID, tox, other businesses. That I, and I don't want to pick on different businesses, but those have been traditionally where, you know, a lot of billing, a lot of bad behaviors happen. So I think the regulation for those that are doing things the right way um, is a positive. I think companies like us are going to make sure we're conforming 
Um, I don't know if dancing in the streets is what, what people will be doing who already have I, I, FDA approved assays, but they clearly have a, a leg ahead. And I, but I do believe the administration of this is going to be incredibly difficult. So that's either going to lead to delays um, in approvals or pushing when the enforcement is. There's going to it'll come to a head on what has to happen. I think at that point. Um, but uh, all we can do at our company is we're going to just prepare for it. We're going to assume it's going to happen, and we're preparing for it. And it's like a, it's a done deal, and and move forward accordingly. Yeah. We're in the same position. So, you know, I was talking, we, we, we have a device. So we actually already have a QMS system that's 1345 up. But I guess they just even announced something today about, about the QMS side. So it's actually going to be quite straightforward for us. But there's 90, and we were intending to do a, a um, you know, we actually have breakthrough de designation. We had have plans to pursue an IVD. And so all of those, just like you said, get crystallized. But that's not true for 90. I, I was talking to Susan Van Meter that, you know, that's not true for 90% of, of LDTs. They they are just not equipped to, to to handle this. And again, fundamentally, the problem is, is that this is not sort of regulatory reform of diagnostics. The Valid Act is. It says we are we're in a new era that all of the the, the idea of a of a diagnostic as a medical device, that, that, that an assay as a medical device, and a, that a laboratory as a manufacturer of a medical device is somewhat absurd. You know, think about it. It's a service. You've got a bunch of people in a building with sophisticated technologies, each of which is FDA approved. But, you know, I think the analogy that resonated for me, because I'm a former heart surgeon, is that that would be the equivalent of saying surgery is a device and, and an operate, and the operating team are manufacturers of a surgery. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they use, uh, FDA approved medical technologies, but at the end of the day, having trained, skilled people performing a service, not that it shouldn't be regulated, it should be, and it should be regulated under, you know, the, based on the modern uh, practice of it, but trying to shoehorn modern diagnostics into a framework of devices and manufacturers for a centralized laboratory providing a service is definitely not the right way. I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to work. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I think it's it's going to be an evolving issue. Um, final question, 2024. Um, it seems that some of the economic pressures are kind of waning. Supply chain issues, which have mostly beguiled the kind of you know actual devices sector, have definitely been mostly resolved. Um, are you all holding out hope for 2024? Be it fundraising, securing reimbursement, new launches. What are you all most excited for? We're in the business of being optimistic. We wouldn't be in the roles we are, right? So, <laughs> and uh, and yes, it's got to be better than 2023, you know, and and certainly uh, the back half of 2022. Um, I think that uh, those of us who attended the J.P. Morgan conference and adjacent conferences that are that, that were there, I think there was, you know, uh, you know modest op optimism. Um, I think that. Uh, you're starting to see some uh, IPOs, uh, and you look at, at what we're uh, in, in our in our business, which is in many cases is initially funded by venture, and then maybe perhaps uh, private equity. Uh, depends upon a flow uh, that occurs, whether a company's going to go public or be acquired uh, in, in the end, and then uh, that actually opens up capital for further funding. You know, and so that's. Uh, and um, from at least discussions that I've had with investors, uh, uh, that um, uh, that has opened up uh, quite a bit uh, over the past versus the past year. 
Yeah, that's to me the key as well. I mean, we were fortunate we did our IPO literally minutes or seconds before the, the market shut down. I feel like we pulled our hand out as the window was 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 closing. And um, and yeah, the key is really will will it open up? Is are we actually seeing the markets open up? Because everything ultimately um, comes down to to access to capital and funding. We can we can slog through all, all the challenges that we have access to. That we've been fortunate enough that we've been able to raise money through alternative types of financings that haven't had to um, have been able to do so. Um, it's opening up probably for biotech, what was sort of its first in line, right? I mean, there have been seven, I think, pharma bi- IPOs already this year. Uh, there were zero diagnostic IPOs last year, um, which is crazy. Um, so, but yeah, the fact that it's opening up for pharma, you know, gives us, gives me hope that they'll, that, that will, will, will be next in line and we'll see the benefit of that. But it's, it's super critical. Otherwise it's going to be a slog. Yeah, and I think for us in terms of it's, it's really a lot about private company, a lot about executing right now. Um, you know, cost containment, and while you're uh, while you're innovating, and that's really our our biggest thing. Is just uh, just like we always say, your best customer is your current customer, the best investor is your current investors, and so making sure that they're educated and excited about what we're doing is really important uh, this year as we continue to move forward, and then. Uh, you know, just to continue to to develop really good relationships with partners because that could lead into uh, strategic investment as well, um, and that's something we're we're super active on. So, yeah, going forward, we're just uh, we're we're head down and uh, and you know, in our business, we're pioneer. Well, I think all three of us are right. Like we're pioneers in the space, so that can be a lot of challenges, but it's also a lot of fun, and that's what we just got to keep driving uh, towards forward. Brilliant. Thank you all for your time. Uh, I think this morning for all of you. Um, yeah, really, really appreciate it. It's been a yeah, very interesting discussion. Thank you.